Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Data Driven Security Podcast. Episode 12 of the Data Security Podcast. My name is Jay Jacobs, and joining me is my co-host, Bob Rudis. Bob, what's on your mind this week? Seaborn is on my mind, and, and my new microphone, Jay. It's a, first, the microphone sounds fantastic. And uh, what, what is Seaborn? Seaborn is a visualization library for Python that, and, and Jay, sit down. Wait, you are sitting down. That's good. Um, I, I think puts it on par or slightly better than visualizations uh, techniques for for R. Uh, so it's rivaling ggplot. Yep. Yep. Well, that's so, good. So so we'll talk a bit a bit more about that in the second half of the show. Okay. Good. Good setup. Good up. Good setup. So we we actually have quite a bit of uh, quite a crew on the podcast with us. I, I like to call it the rogues gallery of security data science. Now, be, before we bring on the rogues, though, Bob, um, we're coming up on the end of the year. And now we, we started this podcast back in January, I think. A very very good January. year. Yeah. And uh, I, was, I was there for it. And um, it's, been, it's been almost a year, and we're, we're looking now forward to 2015. Uh, and, you know, it's kind of tradition within InfoSec for everybody to come out with predictions about next year and how it's going to be, you know, bigger, better, or whatever, all the great things next year, and uh, nobody has to be held accountable or anything. So do you have any predictions uh, looking forward to 2015? What, what, so this is, this, is an easy, this is an easy setup one, and, and this is sad too, but I, my first prediction is that there will be data science in many boxes on the RSA floor. In what in whatever month it is next year? Do you think Do you think next year is the year of data science? <laughs> yes, next year is no. Next year is the year of security data science. Ah, okay. Because I my old joke used to be you know like next year is going to be the year of PKI. I just know it. It'll it'll come you can next. Feel year. It, well, it, it kind of is right. I mean, it, it's the year of SSL, so it might as well be the year of PKI too. Right. Right. If I may interject, it sounds terribly like the year of the Linux desktop. <laughs> Any day now, man. It's totally catching on. It's it's hot. And, um, and, do, and that would be Alex Pinto that, that just said that since he introduced yeah. it. Hey, guys, no, I'm sorry. I could not resist, resist the joke. <laughs> any, uh, any other predictions, Bob? So, I mean, you know, predicting uh, predictive analytics in uh, 2015, how uh, – so you're just saying, though, that this is going to be – it's going to turn into uh, what? It's going to hit the peak of the hype curve. Could we say that? Yeah, it's definitely. I mean, so to to drop it to a little bit more of a serious note, um, I think we'll definitely get to the top of the Gardner hype curve. But I also think that there will be a number of vendors now. And as I said to you before the podcast, Jay, you know, the, how, how you can tell if a vendor is lying, their their lips are moving. But um, and all you know, to kind of take it down from there, I think you'll see many vendors that have been doing things maybe in a pseudo data science way or pre data science way actually adopt real data science techniques even if it is just in sort of a a nascent form so i think you're going to start seeing more folks try to apply the principles of data science to some of the products and services and offerings that they have and i think i think that's going to th those two things that you just mentioned are going to go hand in hand right the hype yeah. curve hitting the top of the hype more people trying to adopt it 
I mean, that's really what the hype curve is, right? Everybody trying to cash in on the promise of what it is. And, and you know what? This is a great segue. This is completely unintentional. What a great segue because um, there are a lot of myths about data science, about security data science, and about what it can do, what it can't do, right? And this is what we were talking about over the last week or two. And we decided to uh, open this one up, open up this podcast, and bring on the uh, the what you call them the rogues the of, rogues the the, the 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 rogues gallery of security data science the rogues gallery yeah peanut gallery we'll just say that so basically we brought on uh, all the all the smart people that we know so that we, you and I don't have to try and talk as much well well we actually invited more they just couldn't right it. these these are the few that actually uh, had Sunday afternoon open right so why don't we go ahead and uh, introduce them. Right. So first, uh, we already heard from Alex, so maybe we'll start with Alex. Alex Pinto, the uh, s- something data scientist at uh, MLSEC. I, I was going to say the, the super genius behind the MLSEC project. but uh, okay. Yeah, we, the good thing about starting something new is that you can pretty much choose your own uh, title. So right. I went with chief data scientist. I thought it was better than emperor or something like that. It made more sense to what Wait, it was. Like. Are you the only data scientist? I'm not. I actually am oh. not. Oh, okay. Not. There is there is another data scientist working with me. Okay. And now, as far as we're actually uh, splitting things up a little bit, and uh, so not only MLSEC project will be the place where we're doing uh, uh, the open source stuff, and we're we're gonna start building community around the people. Actually, there's gonna be people writing about machine learning in general, and specifically about security. Uh, in my, in the website we put together, so we're working through that. Right now, there are some people who are interested, uh, but then there's going there is a commercial entity now, uh, which we're calling Chickenly Needle, uh, as in needle in the haystack, which will probably be one of the blinking boxes that uh, Bob was uh, predicting for next year on RSA. I probably will not be paying RSA prices, you know, right? But I'll do my best to to. To, to put a good face, to try to be one of the guys who are actually doing the work, right? Good, good. Machine learning in a box right here, Bob. You, and how, you, how, do you you, spell, uh, how do you spell needle? Needle, just like it, needle. No, it's not, it's not the so actual Bob. needle. It's N-I-D-D-E-L. And it's not pronounced niddle. It's pronounced needle. It's not pronounced niddle either. No, it's not pronounced needle. No, it's not. <laughs> You, okay, right. so, so you, you realize that you just confused every enterprise purchasing department, right? Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what I did. I used I used uh, text to speech, which is a form of uh, of applied machine learning to decide if it actually pronounced right. So I'm I'm gonna stick with my guns and say that my spelling is correct. All right. Well, <laughs> let's bring on our next guest. Uh, let's bring on David Saversky. David. Um, have you, you've been on the podcast before, right? You were on like episode six or seven or something. You've been on a couple, actually. Yeah. A couple? I think I've actually been on two prior to this yeah. one. Glad Man. to be back. You guys just don't learn. Yeah, you're on for your third one. And uh, can we say where you work and all that? Certainly. So or, I'm the. You the, say it, yeah. <laughs> I'm the manager of the information security program over at uh, Seattle Children's Hospital here in Washington State, and I, I suppose I'm the sole representative of the, the working class. Uh, here, I'm on the enterprise space. I'm the one that buys your products <laughs> uh, and is trying to make better decisions based upon uh, the data that we have in our environment. 
hey, I still have some credibility. I'm only seven months out of reality. Yeah, that's seven months down on credibility. If you yeah, ask I know. Me. I've only got like five more until I'm completely non-credible. I get that. Exponential de- uh, decay happens. <laughs> Good. Well, we're really glad to have you on, David. And I, I think I think uh, one of the great things that you bring is that you 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 really enjoy doing this stuff and working with this stuff and you've been taking a lot of classes doing a lot of reading and you're just you're just doing stuff and you seem to always be doing stuff and you're always tweeting about you know chef and all the other great stuff that you're doing and you're just one of those doers you know it's it's uh it's great to have you around it's it is a representative of a certain form of you know full stack putting air quotes around that uh data analysis um, I won't quite call it data science, and we can have a discussion on that later on there, but I think it's um, it's interesting, <laughs> working within a certain system of constraints. Good. Yep. And our third and uh, uh, final guest, not not the least guest, but just the third guest, uh, Mr. Michael Roitman. And again, all these people are coming back again, and Michael, great to have you back here again. Thank you. And you are the uh, chief R scientist at uh, RiskIO, right? Did I get your title right? My title is just a data scientist, but by default we have no others yet. So we we actually almost didn't have him on the show day, just so you know. Well, it was his choice, not ours, right? Well, no, no, like he, he's he's doing stuff in Scala, Scala, like not Scala, um, Stata now. Oh, Stata, right? I have no idea why you're doing that, dude. And like that almost got kicked off the show. Oh, I just found it. I found a downloadable version. I wanted to see what the hype was about, and there isn't any. No, there, there's zero. I, it's, I, I, I think I told you I'm, I'm helping one, one of my kids in college out with that, and it's, it's horrible. It's, just, it's, sorry, it's terrible. It seems to have all of the issues of importing data front-loaded. So before you get to do any work, you have to do a whole lot of digging around. Yeah, and it's 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 designed for like point and clickers too. Like it's really like I just uh, yeah, it's just terrible. So I'm 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 glad that you're not actually doing real stuff in it. Well, I had to take a look at it, right? Yeah. All right, well let's jump into this. So the first the first myth or um, what's another word for myth? Um, mis misconception, misperception. Things that people think that may not be true, right? So the first one is that this whole data science thing within information security is just a fad and that it's going to pass. It's going to reach the hype curve. It's going to hit the hype and uh, just drop off and and fall to the wayside like uh, I'm sure there's a great analogy there. Um, Antivirus. Like DLP. <laughs> that a DLP. I think that's a great example, actually. No, no, no. It, I have a better one. Uh, network and uh, NAC, the network access control stuff. Well, okay. So I mean, there's, but the, both of those are still hanging out, right? So, but that's, I mean, that's the perception, right? That data science is a, a fad like that. That people are, are going to roll it out, uh, get disillusioned, and uh, go back to what we had before, right? Um, so, what do you, what do you guys say about that? Is it a fad? Are we just all working in a fad, trying to, trying to make a quick buck while the, uh, while the iron's hot? Should I pick a name? Do you want to, <laughs> do you want to imply some order? I don't know. We're all, we're all so polite here. Yeah. Hey, Bob, let me start with you. Is it a fad? So I think kind of, yeah. I, really? I, I think I, I think you're surprised that I was going to say something like that, too. No, but that's I, great. I, I love that answer. Why yeah. Why are you so wrong? <laughs> I'm sorry. I meant why do you, th- why do you think that? 
so I think it works like a lot of things where there's going to be whether this is going to I, I am really not trying to come off sounding elitist or anything here but I think there's going to be a core small subset that actually end up using this for 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 good and using it well and I think that there's going to be a ton of folks that do it really poorly and I think as a result of doing it really poorly it's going to come off just as bad as NAC has come off like that, that was that was that was a great thing to talk about or um, even like you mentioned before, today, PKI, like the, the, these are two things that have potential, but because of a lot of other things in, involved with it, it be, just became too hard to do. And and I think that people are going to rely on vendors to solve their problems instead of doing what we've all suggested, which is learn this stuff, bring this stuff in, evangelize this stuff, and kind of you know you know make this happen in your org. And if that actually happens, I think there's a good chance that this is going to end up being a fad. So you're so, telling it's all our fault then. I, I'm not sure. I wouldn't. I wouldn't blame us per se. But what I would argue is that if if practitioners in general, and like I said, I still have some. I still have a bit of street cred for practitioner stuff. So if practitioners in general don't take this to heart and do more with it than they have in the past with other technologies, um, then this will actually fail, just like other other technologies have failed that they, they've implemented. But how is that different than just the typical hype cycle? You know, the traveling along the Gartner hype curve. I mean, like, how is a, a fad different than than the typical hype and the, the trough of disillusionment and then the actual beneficial part? People will ultimately rely on someone else to do this for them rather than do it themselves or, or, or build it themselves or infuse it themselves, and that will actually be the, the downfall of what this is. Well, let, let me argue that, though, Bob, because I think most of the organizations are not going to be able to staff up on this stuff, right? That is certainly correct. Yeah, I was gonna say something along those lines. I think that yeah. um, I think there's two there's two different things. There's there's a there's definitely a need for education, or at least consciousness that these things exist, and that um, this is even if there is a, a cycle we go through right now, which lasts a few years, where everything thinks this is terrible until the the real solutions emerge a few, a few years from now, even if that happens, uh, people have to start to understand what they will buy. I mean, in the sense that I would love for everyone to be able to um, learn all the different aspects of these things and experiment with their own data, but that's definitely not going to happen for 99% of the organizations out there. But uh, at the very least, the same way that um, if you are, I mean, let's let's get something that is like, okay, like firewalls. Like firewalls are very old. Firewalls have been around for like 30 years, right? And firewalls, when they started, they were probably, I mean, I don't really even remember very well, but they were probably sold as magic, right? This is magic for your network that will save you against everything. And people understood what firewalls did, and they did the the the... The, their homework and they understood TCPIP, they understood how the packet filtering worked and how, how you could do this. And now they are actually able to differentiate or they're able to understand what separates a good firewall from a bad firewall, right? Um, wait, wait, did you actually just say that? Yeah, what, I, that people I are able to do that? I, 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 would, I would definitely argue that. Wow. <laughs> okay, um, okay, okay, okay. I, yeah, you, you just. Well, I, I, you I just think the analogies. I think the analogy is a little poor because it's interesting that both Alex, you mentioned, and Bob, you both use the word technology. 
and you know, we can have a discussion about what data science is and is not, and what technologies are or are not required to do that type of work. Um, I see whatever this thing is that we do or pretend to do or strive to do, you know, if you want to put the data science label out, let's use that as a term for right now. I view it more as the next stage of evolution for uh, business intelligence and business analysis. It is just applying more techniques, more rigorous techniques, uh, and you know, perhaps more data in some cases there, though not necessarily, to what people are doing in anything larger than small, uh, single uh, uh, enterprises today. If you get to any sort of medium-sized organization there, you have folks that wrangle Excel spreadsheets. Uh, I can see a state not too far in the future where we're doing something more evolved than that, whether it's you know, R, Julia, or Python, you know, whatever the language or the tooling is, that's largely irrelevant there. It is the concept of how do we do more than what these tools are doing for us today and go to the next step beyond that. And I think there is something, you know, height curves being what they are, it's a useful metaphor to say that there is an underlying theme that does eventually become part of the gestalt of how we do business. And that I don't think is going to go away. And that would imply that it's not a fad. Yes, that's my vote is that it's not a fad, though in what we are doing in five years will probably bear very little resemblance to what we're doing or think we're going to be doing today. So I had a conversation with a Soviet engineer, a friend's father, where I was explaining to him what I did, and he said that, oh, you're building expert systems. This is done in the 60s, and then people called it business intelligence, and then people called it analytics, and now people are calling it something else. This theory of change is that there's a technology, technological change that happens, like what Dave is describing, where we could do something in business better or more efficiently, or even the typical business analyst could do something more efficiently. But that technology hasn't trickled down yet. So the term emerges as a way to create organizational change that will facilitate that technological change later. So now we have this data science term, which people can use to restructure their organizations to put data analysts in places where they weren't before. We don't really know how to do that. But once we figure out at least <clears throat> a structure that is different than today's, something of that technological change will trickle down to the everyday analysts. I, 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 will, I will further defend my position when we get to the second question because it's a topic that Jay and I have talked about before. So I think that Bob's position is not mutually exclusive with this one in that, yes, there will be a small group of people that will create this fad, but that fad will have trickle-down effects to everyday people, whether it be from a product like Needle or whether it be from the everyday people in business stopping to use Excel and using something else. Yeah. And, and there's a certain element of that evolution, too, that I think we're going to talk on in, in some of the next uh, questions here. But um, the evolution, like you mentioned, expert systems going into BI, you know, and, and you got the same evolution from the mathematics side of, you know, the split into statistics and to uh, machine learning and, you know, that whole evolutionary process there. And, and it's always changing and it's always building on what's been done before. And I think largely that's where we are, right? We're just simply building on what we've done before. But mm -hmm. the entire business intelligence or expert system is new to security. I mean, this is an industry that has largely been driven by gut feel, right? And so I think that's why, that's why we're a little bit unique um, in that we're going to go through this a little bit harder than some of the other industries that have had business intelligence. You know, like advertising, marketing, um, places like that that have had business intelligence part of it before, 
they're going to simply transition into data science and just you know have a few new buzzwords and maybe bring in a few, few new tools and uh, uh, people trained a little bit differently. But in security, we haven't had that. You know, there there really are not statisticians working here. There are not business intelligence people working in security. This is brand new for us. So um, it'll be interesting. I think that also helps security be a place where data science will easily be adapted because a lot of what we're doing in calling data science is automation of expert systems or automation of the judgments of experts that are good. And so we roll that into a data science conception, but really what we might be doing is cleaning a bunch of data and processing it in a real way that experts are already doing, but automating those systems. And those are really easy wins that we keep having in security. And we can call that this data science term to facilitate the change and facilitate the adoption. Other businesses don't get to have those small easy wins. Other businesses have to have you know, some the, the most successful people in the advanced analytics space for security are doing exactly that. And that's already a huge win. That already adds a lot of value to uh, a lot of the data that humans cannot possibly go through all and uh, you know they can't really analyze it at the scale that it's at. So, I mean, if that's what we get out of all of this, at least for the start, I think it's, it's already a good thing, right? We just need to make sure that we we, in a way, we keep the the flame alive so that we can we can go through the droughts and through the everything as people as the, um, public opinion shifts around the the idea of what um, is is trying to be done here in security. So I want to I want to jump to our second topic in this because it's right along those lines, and that is that this notion of data science is not practical, and that uh, essentially it doesn't help. You know, and if you if you think of someone working in the trenches, right? And what, what you two just said is that we're trying to um, help make that decision. You know, we've got way more data, way more things than the average person, any person actually, is going to get through, right? To go through all of that material. But the, the thought from, that, from the trenches of uh, replacing their process with math is uh, inconceivable. Yeah, and you know, so... Essentially, like it, it cannot be practical. It cannot do what I am doing in the trenches. It cannot find badness, find malicious behavior, find find the malware like I can as as a person working in the trenches. Yeah, what, so, what do you guys think? Yeah. So, so Jay, like, and you know, you've you've heard me use this term before, and and I think we have. Boy, I'm offending like every single segment of the InfoSec industry in this particular episode. So, I I, I think we have a Jason Bourne syndrome, which is. There's a, people get into this because they view themselves as, wow, I can, I am the guy hunting the bad guy. I am going through my stuff and I am seeing these things and I will stop the bad guy from this cool leak malware stuff that I, whatever, whatever. I mean, you guys know where I'm going with that. And this, the data science part of that fights 100% against that mentality because we're saying that, and so I, I have this thing I say a lot, I tweet it every so often, humans don't scale. They're absolutely necessary. You can't you can't fight the, what we're trying to fight with the adversaries without humans, but they don't scale. And you actually do need this data science stuff if we're ever going to get any kind of leg up on on the adversaries. But right now we have a we have an entire industry built upon enabling Jason Bournes to happen, and not not the data science part of it to happen. We have the we have the government, the U.S. government, funding a program where we're going to hire a million Jason Bournes to sit with Metasploit rifles and do whatever they're going to do. It's not, it, it, and that is not going to solve the problem. It's just going to make the problem worse. 
Well, it's interesting that you know you mentioned this value and hunting the bad guy um, approach there. A lot of what enterprises are concerned about is not about hunting the bad guy. It's not about doing advanced malware analysis. I mean, there are some organizations that have the the luxury, and I do call it a luxury, of doing that type of work. But the vast majority of enterprises are worried about compliance. It, it's the compliancy, and the question is, you know, what that role does data science? or data analysis, or put what term you want on it, have for compliance. Because security today does not generate value uh, for most organizations. And I don't want to get into a whole debate about what value may be and what does generate do in those cases there. But if we can take these principles of data analysis and actually apply it to make compliance less painful, more effective, and actually reduce risk in a visible, tangible way that a executive or other senior leader actually cares about, now we're talking about winning. I am concerned that what may contribute to a possible failure scenario for data security uh, science would be this focus on finding the bad things, when most organizations don't care. Um, they're really cared about how do I reduce my costs, how do I be compliant. There, there is the compliance angle, but then there's also the SOC, right, and the responding to an incident. And I think most organizations, you know, medium and above, I guess, probably have some type of a response plan, if not actually people in place, right? Um, and I think a lot of what data science is going to do is help with that, uh, as well as some of the other things. But um, And I think that's where that's where this myth is, is stemming from, though, is that people see data science is trying to replace them, trying to trying to imitate human behavior and human thinking, which of course, I mean, is nearly impossible. I mean, you cannot imitate a human thought at this point. Artificial intelligence is still has some flaws to it, obviously. But, um, and I want to point out though that like data science is not about replacing people, right? And I think, Michael, you mentioned this one, that it's it's about supporting the individual, right? So we can take the, the boots on the ground from, from almost any aspect, like David, you were mentioning compliance. If you talk about the amount of work that goes into compliance, there are things in there that can be supported with data science, can be improved, made more efficient, made more effective with data science. And that's really where the sweet spot lies. It's not to replace people. It's not to um, reduce staff so that you can make, you know, turn on a robot and have it do the work. It's absolutely nothing like that. But taking your existing staff, making them smarter, more effective, more efficient. So a really simple way I like to think about this is I, by no means, am a developer. And I work with a lot of really good developers. <clears throat> when I watch them write code, I figure out that they have all these like math shortcuts and commands that they're doing to make them more efficient than me at writing code or even debugging it. And so those things that they're doing, if you just look at them and you automate them for an everyday analyst, they have processes that they're doing inefficiently or processes that a machine can do much faster. That if you just automate those, import some data, maybe figure out what kind of keyboard shortcuts those people are using, quote unquote keyboard shortcuts, then you can increase their throughput efficiency like you would on a production line a lot better. So the most common example I can think of this is when a new vulnerability comes out, somebody will do a lot of research about it. That research is already done. It's just it's in a million different places, and people can pull it in. And people can flag it on alerts, or we can have any of a number of data science procedures, from like basic aggregation to 
cluster analysis that can make that job a lot easier. And I think that's what we're seeing on the short course. No, yeah, I and I agree. Uh, I agree a lot with what was said. It's uh, the way I really see it. This being useful is really uh, around a funnel analogy, in the sense that you have all this raw data, you have all these different pieces of information that you would have to look at in order to do your job effectively, right? But as your organization scales up, uh, it becomes impractical for you to look at everything, every single time, uh, and then you need to make those decisions and you need to make sure that you have either summarize or treat the data or worked on data so that you can then make a split decision or, or at least have the stuff that you need to do prioritized, right, in order to make, to make your next move, right? And uh, that's where uh, creating some analytics and doing computation uh, and uh, to try to, again, automate a lot of the grunt work that would be done anyway, right, that the Jason Bournes of the world would do, right? And I'm pretty sure I don't really get it, to be honest, because uh, when you think about it, most of the work that um, can be readily automated or that could be used uh, uh, more efficiently be used to help people would be ones that, that would really take the boring parts out of the job, right? And all the, all, everyone would be doing the fun part all the time or at least what they think about being fun, right? Which is actually catching the bad guy or something like that, right? But still there's a lot of pushback. Um, around the idea that you can be helped by a machine that is also has some understanding of the process and uh, that you can teach it some of the process and then it can be uh, automated away for you so that then you as a human being can be assisted by that and make a, a final decision of what you want to do. Yeah, the, the one thing I wanted to ask David before, because I, I, I totally grok the compliance angle of it. I spent a lot of time dealing with compliance when, when I was doing real work too. And um, I'm not, so yes, I know we all do real work, but you know, real real work. And what about the tools that have been there to so like I'll I'll, I'll pick on everyone's favorite you know like a punching bag for compliance related um, tools. So I'll pick on Archer. Um, I have no problem picking on Archer. I, I used it. Um, I have had to deal with it, so I, I I know just I know just what it is. That that's grown up. I mean, it's it's been around for a decade or more now, and its whole goal was to try to help people. You know, basically make have a better understanding of data and help things be compliant more, but it really hasn't. I mean, it 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 just hasn't. And how how do you see anybody really learning enough from a tool perspective? So like, and and I know like you did like I know I I, I sound technology focused. I'm trying to not be tech focused, but the reality is most people can't do what you do, David. I mean, in, in organizations, there there is not a David Zaversky who is Superman pulling in every single tool together, wrangling all the data together, and having things actually, you know, be able to make decisions based upon that. That's just, it's, you know, you, you are a, a data science, a security data science unicorn right now. And, and I just, I, I don't see vendors being able to provide that kind of support, or, I, or on, on the flip side of it, I see vendors and I'm, I'll, I'll bet money on the, everybody right now. I'll, I'll bet money on, on on the RSA table for next year. Every vendor is saying, "Well, if you buy this, you don't have to buy the like the, the you don't need these people. Like they're basically going to go. You don't need to have people because you just have to buy our solution and you can have half the staff or whatever." So I, you know, given that we've had this failing from the people that are providing the solutions for most of the industry, like for most organizations. I, I, how do you see it actually succeeding if you don't actually have individuals who are focusing on this within an organization and understanding it? Well, I think there are going to be and there is a need for people to continue to focus upon those 
solutions, whether they be unicorns or whatnot. I mean, there are folks that are taking that next evolutionary step and are playing with the tools. Uh, you know, they're they're doing the DevOps thing in, in some cases. Um, they are you know pushing the boundaries of what is easily accomplished today and are partnering with you know some of the more advanced education I won't even call it advanced but are pursuing the education there to develop the math skills uh, to operate in the space um, less dangerously talking about what the vendors can provide and to a large part what the vendors do is irrelevant to me I mean they're certainly they will be out uh, providing solutions and I don't necessarily disagree with your uh, uh, prognostication that RSA may be uh, the year of data science. Um, sure, th that'll be the case, and you know, there's always going to be some fad that grabs that that grabs the attention. But I think there is my focus is really upon how do I grow people and encourage people into this space. How do I grow people that are interested in say traditional information security and say it's more than just running firewalls and doing incident response and doing patch management and systems build, et cetera, and responding to compliance requests. It's really saying, okay, how do I help do this job better? Uh, if you look at something that's happening on the system administration space, you know, they have this term that's been uh, widely used recently, um, site reliability engineer, or SRE. This comes from the DevOps space. And these are folks that are going beyond their traditional sysadmin role and are looking at saying, okay, how do I engineer the system better? How do I optimize the organization that I'm in to do what I do or do the, the less interesting parts of what I do better, faster, more reliably, et cetera, et cetera, there. I think it's the same thing that's going to happen with information security overall, at least I hope that happens with information security overall, is that we're going to become more data-driven, uh, not necessarily because there are some, there's a data science in every uh, enterprise doing cool data science things. And, great that there is, but I don't know if that's really a desirable state. But really, it, some elements of this, whether it be, you know, we were talking you know, somewhat mockingly about k-means um, as a technique earlier there. If every information security practitioner could talk about k-means, or a segment of the security professionals could talk about k-means, about why that might be helpful or not helpful, that would be a huge win, because the data is there. Uh, and I think to the point about what the vendors can bring, you know, if the vendors give me an open API and allow me to grab data out of their system and st stuff data back in, that's plenty. Hands off at that point from my perspective. So I want to tie it back to the original um, myth or mis misconception that I started with that data science is not practical, um, that it does not tie back to uh, what people actually care about. And I was, as, a, as you guys were talking, I was thinking about that, and I think actually and this is unfortunate, I think that there is a lot of truth in that statement. And I think because uh, because we're still nascent, we're still young, um, and we get into data science, we, we people in the industry may get enamored with it, right? And they start, um, and, and Bob, this is something that you and I wrote about uh, in the book, about how you need to start with a research question. Otherwise, if you start with data, what happens is you, you take the data in somewhere that is convenient or some way that looks interesting from a technical perspective. And what you end up with is something that is uh, really technically interesting but really not practical at all in the least. And I think that we've seen a few things like this already. 
there's been a few talks that I've seen at conferences and stuff like that of people saying, "Hey, I built this thing," and, and you know, and I'm sitting there watching it, thinking, "So, like, what what is the practical aspect of that, right? I mean, a lot of really cool stuff, some cool science going into it, but at the same time, it's just not practical, you know. So I think that there might be a little truth to that statement about it not being practical. Anyone care to uh, comment on that one? I think a lot of the things that we talked about being super helpful might not be in the everyman's conception of data science. So a lot of the things that aid analysts might not be things that are vendorizable, let's say, or might be things that we don't consider data science because they're just not that advanced. Um, and those things are really practical. Another point is somewhere in between people like Dave and people who don't you know, write any code at all and do security is a whole slew of businesses that use managed service providers or consultants. And I think we'll start to see consultants adopting more data-driven philosophies towards what they're doing. So when they come in and they do the regular compliance stuff, they might be implementing processes that, I mean, you know, you hear about Ernst & Young buying this analytics company and Deloitte integrated hiring, Aqua hiring 30 people that are doing some kind of analytics project. I think um, those consulting companies that are doing compliance that are doing security will start to also playing the data science space. Yeah, and, and, and because they, they've all implemented SAP and organizations really well, that, that gives them a good precedent for, for implementing security solutions too. <laughs> I do, I, there's something I, I wanted to add. I was thinking about what you were saying about the practicality of it. And uh, it also ties a little bit back to the, to the distance or the, the gap between academia and the actual practical stuff that's going on. It's something that I, I enjoy talking about a lot. I had a whole presentation which touched a lot about this. And, uh, but I think there's two things I wanted to, to, to talk about that. Uh, the first of all is, the, uh, of course, the research question. There's the applicability of the research question, which I think is something that's very important. I mean, what do I care if you wrote a, a, a very complex, uh, uh, I don't know, NLP-based uh, machine learning model that tries to predict if someone is accessing your website? How likely they are to send you to to try to run a, a shell shock against you, right? Oh yeah, I got 95% accuracy on that. Well, if I was running a content analyzing looking for the string, I would get 100%. So what's the point, right? What exactly are you trying to make better? What's the process you're trying to make better with your research, right? And there's that's a question that usually escapes a lot of these people, right? It becomes very like, oh, let's just do science for the sake right. of science. Which is cool. I love doing that, but it it, 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 it makes us very hard to see where where the gap is, how the gap's gonna be closed. Right. But then I get hopeful because I remember stuff like antivirus, right? So antivirus research is what? I mean people started using Bayesian stuff for antivirus in maybe ninety-eight. I think I remember a paper from Microsoft Research from ninety-eight, right? It took us I don't know, seven years, maybe ten years, but yeah, it's everywhere now and it works brilliantly. I mean, I'm not talking about phishing, of course, that's not what I mean, but actual Wait, spam. Did you mean spam or, because you were saying antivirus. No, and a spam, sorry. Oh, okay. I needed the spam, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I was, was going to say, man, I, I didn't know that they got smarter. So. No, 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 it's okay, don't, don't get me started on that. But, uh, uh, but so, yeah, spam, I mean, spam yeah. is a great example of a great success story. And actually, let me use that as a jumping point into the next topic, and that is the 
people who say that data science is faulty. It's, it's uh, fundamentally broken because I've got the stories and or examples to prove it, and they'll typically bring up something like the financial crisis, uh, how you know the, the quants during the financial crisis got it horribly wrong, and of course it's a catastrophic event. And I mean, there's, there, there are stories like that all over the place, right? I mean, you can search the internet and find stories of uh, predictions going wrong, you know, there's, uh, they're just all over the place. So, and there is that, right? And so people immediately think that data science is faulty or fundamentally broken because of these stories. Well, I, I would argue there that not everybody, so I, I actually, I'll say it with maybe potentially better English. There were organizations that got the financial crisis right. They were just, there was a tiny fraction compared to the overall folks doing analysis on that that got that. There was a, a whole host of organizations that had very limited exposure in the areas, you know, like the subprime mortgages is just one of them, but in all the, in all the areas that contributed to the, the financial crisis, the recent one, um, there was a number of organizations that, that, that had models that worked really well and predicted it, and they, they, they really came out unscathed. And there are a whole a ton more that didn't, and that's kind of maybe where you're talking about here, where because the vast majority didn't get it right, and they were they were in theory using math, quote unquote, um, that that since they since they couldn't deal with it back then, that we can't do it in security right now. But I, I guess what I would argue is that that was a learning point, and there are a number of things that have occurred since then. And yes, I know it's not perfect, but you've got a whole bunch of other tests going on in the market, and a whole lot of other things looking at things and adjusting things. Um, that that make it a pretty much a way more doable thing to at least prevent, if not detect, when things are going awry in in the markets. And I think that's similar to the battle that we have in security, where you know our, our threat actors aren't wanton bankers wanting to screw people over for more money. It's actually like true adversaries who are trying to do really horrible things. And in in that particular case, I think we we can get smarter. The models can get smarter. You know, things can get better. But will it ever be a hundred percent correct? And the answer is 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 no. So I, I as I guess I'm defending data science a little bit here. I mean, and and I'll, actually I I do like data science. I do it for a living. But um, so I I think it can get better, but it's never going to be perfect. So if you, if people want perfect, it is definitely not an area where where you're going to find perfection. Bob, you sound really defensive there about data science. I think the better frame is that the statement isn't comparative at all. A few failures of algorithmic models or quant-based models are fine because the comparative statement is how does that compare to not running mathematical models in the first place? Yeah, I was going to say that nobody, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt, please. No, go ahead. There's just a lot I more. I was going to say nobody in the financial market stopped using the models. Nobody did. They're still using the models. They're using more and more models. Yeah, to Bob's uh, point, they just tweak them, right? They use that as a learning point, which if you were just using expert judgment or if you were based on Excel spreadsheets, you couldn't tweak them. So that, Michael, you had a really great point, and that is that, um, man, so it goes into the next topic as well, but essentially you cannot rate the successfulness of uh, an approach uh, based solely on the outcome. Right? Essentially, you have to rate how good an approach is compared to the other approaches at your disposal. Right? So in the case of like the, I hate to talk about the financial crisis because I think the applicability to security is stretched at best. But um, in that case, what would someone without models have done? How would they have performed in the months leading up to it during the event? I mean, 
you know, and I'm sure with those not even touching models, there's a whole range of people that got completely screwed over and uh, fared well. You know, and so the the way you evaluate something is compared to what. Well, but, but, to... well, but before you go there, and and this just goes back to my Jason Bourne thing before. Um, there are there are so if you if you do any research into it, it wasn't just the models that failed because there were some core models that actually failed. But there's you know there isn't just one model to rule them all in that in that particular space either. And in a lot of cases, in some very strategic organizations who had the ability who who because they pivoted caused other things to happen and it was like basically a down, downward spiral. There were actually I'm, there, were, there were some greedy SOBs that ignored the model and decided to make a ton of money off it themselves and basically screwed over a whole, whole lot of other people. So there were actually a bunch of financial Jason Bournes causing this problem because they actually ignored the data science. Well, I don't I don't want to I don't want to pick at the financial crisis. Well, no, but but, but I'm, I'm going back to like humans actually caused some of the problem because they actually ignored the data science. Sure. Yeah, so and I think a lot problem. of it comes back again to that question of what are your objectives? What problem are you trying to solve? Uh, the the data science security data science as it exists today uh, is pretty well targeted on technical security measures for the large for the most part you know anti-spam virus uh, intrusion detection from a network perspective those types of things there and there's a lot of opportunity for relatively easy success in that space relatively um, now when you get into the broader area of breaches that are mostly or have large elements of human factors associated with that, that's a harder space. It's not impossible to apply those techniques, but it's harder. Um, there are more factors, it's more subtle there, requires other fields beyond what traditional quote-unquote security is today. And that goes you know, partly to the problem of you know, what the heck is the security industry anyways? What does that mean? Uh, so the fact that we have breaches is not on its face a disapproval of applying a model-based approach. Yeah, I have a couple of things I, I wanted to add. It's um, I think that one thing that made people specifically um, specifically sensitive about uh, the idea of false positives and false negatives in security is there's always uh, and this is something that is I talk about in my talk and, and was in a, in the in the 2010 Vern uh, paper about uh, specifically the challenges about uh, uh, anomaly detection machine learning for security is that the cost of a false positive and a false negative is very high, right? So you're either wasting resources uh, to have someone look at something that wasn't really infected, that wasn't really bad, right? Or you potentially missed someone that had uh, broken into uh, the thing. So when you look at something that has, is quantifiably uh, there is a quantifiably quantifiable uncertainty there. You know that any model is not going to be perfect because they're not built that way. They cannot be built that way, right? And you start to be very uh, aware that these things will have false positives and false negatives, right? And then you go back to the pain around security for false positives and false negatives. You start to get very reactive. But I think the the, the point that was raised here was very important. How does the false positives and negatives uh, raised by this model will compare against not having the model or running a similar technology right. that does not try to model this data uh, correctly, right? So uh, it becomes, it really becomes a, a, a very different, I mean, in my previous life as a consultant, I've had more than one instance of uh, getting, I don't know, one of these shiny blinky boxes that did new stuff, right, in the network into a, into a customer. We would do the trial on the machine 
it would uncover a bunch of things, right? And then they would tell me, okay, I'm not going to buy it. But how is that possible? There's, it's picking up a bunch of stuff. No, 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 no. I'm not going to buy it because it's going to generate a bunch of work that I'm not going to be able to, 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 to parse. I'm not going to be able to run. My metrics will plummet. I'd rather not know. At the, at the, st at the state that I yeah. am right now, I mean, I have a lot of work to do, and then we'll talk again in a couple of years because it is a reality. But, and, and if you're subscribing to something that actually quantifiably measures how much uh, it, it's getting wrong, right? You're actually more scared of it than something that, oh, yeah, it's perfect. It's going to catch everyone. So, yeah, it's, it, it's kind of puzzling for me. So, but I mean, along those lines, what we're saying is that um, in order to rate or or say how well uh, an algorithm performs, it has to be compared to something, right? So, for example, if you have your analysts, you implement some algorithm, and and you have them spending sixty percent of the time chasing ghosts, right? False positives. Um, that sounds really, really horrible, 60% of their time. But if you compare it to what it was before, maybe they're at 80 or 90% of their time. You know, and I think that's, and from that aspect, hey, it's an improvement. I mean, wow, it's still really crappy. There's still a long way to go, right? But, I mean, that that is better than what we had before. Therefore, maybe we should, you know, consider going with it. Or, you know, I mean, there's all the other calculations in there. But you just can't say, hey, it's not perfect, throw it out. So, so I, I, what I'll throw in there is, and, and of course, people are actually measuring things like that right now in their organizations. That was, that was going to be my comment exactly. Let and, me, let me open this up to you though, Michael, because this will go to you. So the, the last point that I wanted to make here is that the, the question comes up: Is data science really a science? And I think that you were going to answer it right now. Yeah, absolutely. So the meta thing there is that in order to be able to compare it to the status quo, you need to start measuring the status quo. And that's step one of both drafting an algorithm that'll do something and then also comparing it to patterns. So when somebody throws out a random piece of quote-unquote science and says, look at how much better it is, that's not scientific because you're not measuring against the baseline. And measuring that baseline is where you start asking questions in the first place. So I think, like you were describing a process where they've started using a data science tool that has a 40% false positive rate. I think the correct start is, what is our false positive rate in our organization today? Or what is the average time to fix a vulnerability today? And then from there, you can see whether a scientific approach is working. Right? It's just hypothesis testing. And when you do it that way, then it's surely science. When you throw in an out-of-the-box product that's not tested against the baseline and doesn't solve a problem that you actually have, then it's not science. It's a piece of math. So, so I'll, I'll throw out there, though, the difficulty, in, and, and, and I apologize to David for kind of focusing on, on the whole defender bad guy thing instead of the compliance thing because I'd love to have a discussion about that in more detail because I, I, I felt your pain so I understand what you're going through but speaking like as the SOC analyst here so do you really think you're going to get a SOC manager so a manager of a bunch of Jason Bournes um, to, to, to admit to management that their people are wasting 90% of their time a month like do you honestly think someone's going to actually post that statistic up to management crickets yeah I, and and I, I'm not. I'm not judging anybody with that statement. It's a very difficult thing to say, mostly because the people they have to report those numbers to don't understand why it's so hard. Because security, I don't care if it is a Jason Bourne or if it's data science or if it's a compliance thing. Security is freaking hard. Um, right. we're, 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 all, we're all in this because we're masochists. Say this way. I, I don't know which one is which, but we, we all love pain. That's why we're in this because it's really hard to do, and and we lose more than we win. And 
and get yeah. You know, I think people being able to be comfortable with and being enabled to report things like that, so people can see just how ineffective some of the current practices are, or effective if you want to you know if you want to put a more positive spin on that, and then being able to use that as a baseline to then say hey if we implement this thing whether it's something for a compliance initiative or something to actually you know, do direct things against adversaries. In that, if you can then do that to show that measurement, I think that's winning right there. And that, that's, an, that's a positive infusion of a data science uh, uh, mentality into an organization that I think could have a huge impact on making things better and be a great example to say, hey, if we do more of this, we could probably do better in other areas too. So let me let me wrap it around. I, I have a wrap-up question that I want to get to, but before that, I want to get back to the science part of data science. And Alex, maybe I'll pick on you a little bit, but where where is the science part of data science? God, that's a good question. Thank you. That is a good question. The person who came up with this question was very smart. Yeah. Uh -huh. don't, don't, so, don't, don't encourage him, Alex. Just don't. <laughs> but no, I, mean, I think you know the answer. I think, okay, so I know the answer to as that. As you're working right? on an algorithm. The, the answer is that um, people pose uh, the title and pose the, the thing as data science is for the, for the reasons that it should be, which is something that we have touched before here on, on this specific episode, which is lead with a hypothesis, lead with a question, right? And then go forth and try, use the data to try out whatever you're trying to figure out, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I know that specifically for that because I have, uh, as, as my uh, uh, upbringing into data science, as, as I started working through a bunch of different techniques and a bunch of different things, I learned a lot about which kinds of questions are dumb, which kinds of questions are smart, right? With which kinds of questions uh, you may uh, be able to answer correctly and which ones, well, you might think you are answering, but actually you're not. You're actually, there's a much smaller scope question that actually is the question you're looking for, right? But then you can't see it right away. You have to experiment and fail a lot, right? So this is something that people do not appreciate a lot about the science part, right? And specifically around data science, and maybe even more specifically about security, people are not really comfortable about talking about failures, right? And providing negative examples in the sense of, okay, I tried this thing and this thing didn't work, right? Uh, and uh, that's, all about, that's all about the science, right? That's all about uh, what should be done and people should try to be more uh, forthcoming around that. So, so, so I'm, 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 gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna do what, what, what every good, um, uh, podcast host does, and I'm going to quote from Wikipedia. Uh, that, so the terms, yeah, the term science is a systematic enterprise that builds and organizes knowledge in the form of testable explanations and predictions about the universe. So I want to, I want to fly off the cuff here a little bit. Um, that, I mean, that's all cool of uh, your statement, but I think that there's a. Thanks for quoting Wikipedia. The um, the, the, there's a perception, though, of science that science is based on facts, right? That when something becomes a science, it becomes very entrenched in facts. And there was a book I was reading, uh, Stuart Firestein, called Ignorance and How It Drives Science. And he makes a statement in there that, that facts are out there. And in order to do science, you have to understand these facts. But real science begins just beyond the facts, right? Just into that gray area. Right? And what, what makes data science science is that 
it has the elements of science. It has uh, data collection. It has reproducible research. Has uh, evidence gathered, evidence presented. You know, when I when I would uh, just do security years ago, the arguments and debates about what to do uh, from a security architecture perspective were legendary. Right? You get you get five security experts in a room and a very complex architecture, and you have five completely different opinions about how to do it. And you end up with just a, a brute force punching match you know, in a conference room. And, but you get data science in a room, and all of a sudden you, you cut down that discussion to about a tenth, right? Because you say, hey, I, I applied uh, this, you know, doing this classification, I applied a random forest, here's the... Uh, you know, the, the specificity and, and all the other elements that you can pull out of this algorithm. And everybody goes, oh, great. All right, what do we do next? Right? There's, it's, it's reproducible. There's, um, there's a foundation to it. There's science behind it. There's mathematics. There's provability, falsifiability, all this great stuff that makes up science. And I think that's what makes data science. It's right, right beyond the facts, and that's really where science starts. And I think that's where data science, especially in security, needs to start as well. I'm off my soapbox now. So let me let me wrap up with just a question. I want to go around the horn with a question here. So if you think of like the typical information security, cybersecurity manager, someone in the field managing teams uh, in various aspects of security, how much do they need to know, let's say one, one to five year time frame, how much are they going to need to know about this whole data science thing? And we'll, we'll go around the horn. Anybody want to take that first? So can, can you clarify need to know? What what should they know? Do they need to know anything? In, with, with, within know anything? In five years, you said? Like, so within a five-year time frame? Um, sure. Is that a good time frame? Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm only asking because the reality is, okay, and this is my, this is, this is my, my, my perception of what reality is. I, I, I guess this is sort of my, 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 my prognostication. Things aren't going to change substantially in in the, the the good versus bad, the compliant versus uncompliant, or whatever, over the next five years. That people could still do the same thing that they're that they're doing right now. Go grab the certifications that they're going right now. Go grab the cool hacker exposed books that they're grabbing right now, and still be successful in their jobs right now. And and so in terms of you know, would does the average is the average practitioner need to, do they need to do this to survive in their jobs or to grow in their jobs? My answer would to be. No, like, like, like. I guess I'll just leave it there. So the answer is to me a no. Would they be better off? To define better off, like, I, 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 I'm not being argumentative. Yeah, like, what's, what's the metric, off. right? What does success look like? Is success keeping a job, or is it is success catching more bad guys? Do, right. Doing your job well. So I mean, there's there's a huge difference there between doing your job and doing it well, right? Um, do, doing it better year over year than you have in the previous years, right? Um, yeah, I, I guess the, there's a, a question there about whether it's doing what you're doing now better or doing something that's characteristically different. Uh, Mr. Do you need data science for that, David? Well, there's a couple points I was thinking about when you were framing that question. One, for a manager, a manager doesn't necessarily need to know a lot of data science or to manage a team, you know, to manage a security function. You know, that's you know, core leadership and so forth. They're less about the technical skills 
even the, the scientific principles around that, uh, there's some awareness that within five years I don't think will be commonplace, but for many people that are in the information security space are in there because they are passionate about it. Uh, it's not just a, a job that they want to go do. They have some degree of a calling to it. At least that's been my experience. Uh, perhaps a limited sample there. And for those folks that really want to be continuing to push those boundaries, that don't want to uh, continue to push blinking lights, uh, because as the security technologies get better, and you know vendors being what they are, you know they will get better to a certain degree. Uh, those technologies will get baked in, whether it's you know some sort of machine learning algorithms baked into your firewall that can try to determine whether a connection is good and bad. Some of that stuff is going to get baked in and will make things to some degree better. Slightly better. Yeah. But if they're interested in you know going beyond that, and you know we've talked about, there's been talk uh, about you know, security becoming more of a business function, there was management functions. For folks that hear those conversations, they're either part of those conversations or are otherwise excited by it, that want to be part of that that one percent. If that one percent is going to grow to be you know five percent, there's going to be some sort of skill set that needs to be brought uh, into those teams, whether at a practitioner or at a manager level. I think the first quality that needs to be there is curiosity, data curiosity, um, and, and scientific curiosity, and say, okay, from there, I can do a lot. If you're curious about how to do something better, and you're curious about what better is, from there, the road is open. I mean, there's a certain degree of attitude you have to have there, but from curiosity, all paths become much easier. That's, that's a great point. It's an excellent point. I think I like there is that. a there is a maybe a dist I think the the manager word throws it a little bit off, right? I also was thinking about it exactly what David said. I was thinking about it, but how high is this manager really? Who who does he spend most of his time talking to? Is it the board or the CEO or is it their the guys that that actually do the the security day to day legwork thing, right? And uh, what I guess I mean not specifically thinking about uh, the the catching bad guys aspect, right, that we were discussing a little bit right now, but I would wager that uh, given the current trend that companies are getting more and more data-driven in their decision-making, right, or at least most of the company, I mean, a lot of the financial institutions already are, uh, but uh, as more and more companies get uh, exposed to uh, the amount of, uh, and really, uh, again, going back to what David was saying about the, the more business intelligence-like and decision support-like aspects of it uh, around their whole, their whole enterprise, why shouldn't they be asking the same kind of assurances or the same kind of science and the same kind of metrics even from information security as they would expect from the other areas of the business. Actually, I, I mean, I can't answer it for every single one, but the majority of cases, um, while there may be a fundamental understanding of some of the financials and some of the, the logistics around how businesses operate, uh, this security is still one giant black box for most organizations. It's getting a lot better. Um, I've seen over the past, uh, I haven't okay, I haven't talked, I have to be careful because I haven't been doing real work for seven months, but before that, over the past 18 months before that, I've seen it get better at every level of the organization. Uh, there's getting more understanding, there's people getting getting more insight, but until that, until that black box is opened and more people see what actually happens there and understand what happens there, just like they do from logistics, just like they do from finances, et cetera, um, it, it, won't get a, like, it won't get better from that place, but it is thankfully getting better. 
I just think that understanding it or understanding how to use the data can empower an, an individual and an organization so much. Like suddenly you can do your own math, even if you're not doing exactly to the degree that whatever tool or whatever thing you're doing, you're using, but at least you can do some verification yourself, have a little bit more of understanding of what's going on, and that's got to be useful, right? I think that we're running low on time. Bob, how long have you been uh, yapping away here? We, we, we are just upon the one the one hour mark, but we do have two Holy questions. Cow. Yeah, we do have two questions that we have to, to, to actually put forth here that, that weren't from our own minds. Okay. So uh, uh, we, 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 we have one question, and, and I guess we could all be funny and just say yes or no, but I think we, it might, I think we might give it a little bit more time than that. Um, so uh, Fernando, uh, for, I'm going to, I'm sorry, Fernando. So Fernando Montenegro, he, um, he, he, he gave us two questions, and um, the first one is, does security data science imply or require big data? Now, I'm guessing that's sort of a tongue-in-cheek question, but um, just maybe a quick roundtable for like a yes or no and a quick why from everybody. And we'll start with Alex. Uh, no, definitely not. And, and why, quick. Ah, why? Oh, I have to say why. Well, just quick, yeah, just quick. Yeah, the, I mean, uh, you always have more data than you think. Right? Nice, I mean, that's cutting, good. Cutting Hubbard, right? That's good. I, uh, David. Um, well, I'm looking forward to Michael's comment on this one there. Um, but the, the short answer is no. Uh, it's about the process, not about the, the data. Cool. I'm going to ignore Jay for a second. Uh, Michael. Yeah, I'd say the same thing. I would say that um, processes generate a lot of data themselves. Like what we said earlier, where if you measure your baseline, that'll generate enough data. So I think, yeah, it's more about the process and the output of that process is a whole bunch of data. Cool. Jay, Jay do you want to answer it? <laughs> yeah. I would, I would say no. <laughs> Um, sorry, I was choking there. <coughs> but the um, if you think about it, you can do data science without big data, um, but you'd struggle to work with big data without data science. As Michael was saying, like on chat with this, like, if you were running for like president of like security data science, you'd win right <laughs> now, dude. Like seriously. Well, it's true, right? I mean, you... I, I didn't say it's not true. It just it's very eloquent. Like it's it's a really good it's a really good security data science campaign. Ah, I can turn a phrase. Oh yeah. Um, really data driven campaign too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then the the last the last question from from outside is uh, so, what interesting projects are being done in security data science beyond working with IP addresses? or vulnerability data? Like, is there anything happening with transactions or identity, et cetera? So basically broadening the scope of what security is and bringing in other things. Um, Michael, it's, I, I, it's unfortunate to pick on you since you kind of work with, you know, vuln data a lot, but. I, I have yeah, one. I think of what the other stuff is, I think there's a lot of talk about exporting what's done in fraud detection to security. And fraud mm -hmm. detection in large enterprise, what it's done right is both about you know, clustering analysis on data and multifaceted searches. But it's also about people management and those projects once they become data driven way outside my pay grade, way outside my level of expertise, but I think that those things have a pretty established practice of being done well and they're now being supported to security. Alan Miller had a talk about both uh, I think like two years ago she had a talk about the awesome things, the awesome data driven things and fraud detection that you could export in. And this year at Syracon she had a talk about the terrible things that have been caused to you overall. But I think lots of lessons learned from, from both finance and fraud detection that can now be exported that are more process-driven than 
your standard long data or your standard IP tables. So um, I want to answer that question too, though, Bob, because one of the things that I I actually haven't seen much of this yet, but I think it's going to it's going to have a huge impact on security, and that is machine learning within identity management. Um, and I think I mean we've all heard a little bit about this about trying to deduce if a, a login is valid, you know, based on the time of the day where it's coming from the. Uh, you know, history of that login, that sort of a thing. But I think is that, you know, I think that we are we are where spam was in the mid to late 90s for that. Um, you know, it's a lot of rule-based stuff. There's a lot of flaws in it now. It's it's working okay, but there's a lot of breakdown in there. And I think we would see a huge gain applying machine learning into identity management. And I, I, I hope that there's some uh, capitalist thinking people out there that can uh, uh, capitalize on that. Well, th there's actually quite a few, as far as I can tell. There's there has been a whole new fad uh, going back to to what uh, Bob was talking about earlier around uh, so-called user behavioral analysis, which, uh, as far as I can understand, it's trying to generalize a lot of these fraud-based concepts about uh, logging into applications, right, to a more to a larger network-based uh, uh, environment, right. The question there is, are you able to do this to a general network or to a general environment, right? And uh, I've talked to a bunch of people, and I've had people uh, giving me mixed reviews about different vendors. And it wasn't like a, a specific vendor was better than another one. They all had good stuff and bad stuff to what they were doing. Something that I found uh, in that uh, in the identity management thing that I found was very interesting, this is actually maybe a, a year or so old. There was actually a competition in Kaggle about uh, assigning roles to people, right? It was sponsored by Amazon, so you'd have a list of what were the role assignments for specific employees uh, on a specific period of, I don't know, X amount of months, and then you'd have to predict what were the, were the role assignments for, for the following period, right? And it was like uh, you had an ID for the user, an ID for whatever its manager was, and an ID for, okay, I'm adding this role, I'm subtracting this role, right? And it got some very interesting results, and people actually did a very good job uh, at, uh, given a, a, a pattern there, a very good job to predict. And then, you, I mean, it is a gateway for you to doing uh, uh, actually adaptive uh, uh, auditing. On, on information, on, on systems themselves, right? And pretty much ties back to the compliance. This is much more a compliance activity than a, than a specific uh, security catching bad guy activity. So I thought that was very interesting. I, don't, I, don't, I, didn't, I, I didn't see it really being this kind of concept being pushed further so far, but I think it's still up there at Kaggle. Yeah, and I think stuff like that, we're going to be growing into that a lot more. You know, I think I think that these are signs of what is to come. The the products that are trying to do it, you know, with mixed reviews, uh, that Kaggle competition. I I think that the the writing's on the wall that we're going to see that start to integrate into this role assignment and identity management and all that. So the other thing that I want to mention of other places where we're going to see this rolling out is having it embedded in services that we're already using. And you know, like uh, OpenDNS comes to mind. I've been, to, you know, I had some great conversations with those guys, and they were on the podcast, Bob. Um, but they, you know, they're taking something as basic as DNS and applying 
you know, algorithm, machine learning, uh, graph theory to DNS to make DNS smarter. And I think that we're going to see that through a lot of the technical services that we subscribe to, from cloud providers to network providers to mobile providers. I mean, all these things, I think that we're going to start to see the, the analytics and the, and the math being inserted into uh, the infrastructure. And, and David didn't get a chance to answer yet. Well, I was actually surprised you guys didn't mention uh, the Veris work. Uh, from a oh, yeah. science perspective, yeah, that little thing. Oh yeah, that old thing. Sure. <laughs> um, this kind of goes to the conversation we we're having before we started uh, the recording about you know the definition of science and where does that data science, where does that start and stop versus basic, well, quote unquote, basic risk analysis and decision support work. There, um, there is work. All the work that I do, whether it be IP based vulnerability information. Uh, Incidents, etc. There is all in support of making better risk decisions. You know, and our uh, my team's uh, framework is largely based upon uh, the Open Fair framework there and that taxonomy there, and so I'm continually looking for how can we do those simulations better and how can we test and improve the accuracy of those so that we can make better risk decisions. And so I'm looking for other data sources around that. And so that, yes, incidents come to mind is a really big one there. Uh, identity management, uh, though we're not going as far as uh, some of the elements that Alex was mentioning, we do do a little bit of work around that in terms of, you know, login detection and remote access and so forth there. So there is work underway, but certainly I think that the vast majority of work is on traditional technical security stuff today because that's the, that's the low-hanging fruit. And that's not necessarily a bad sign because uh, there's a lot of ground to be done there so I'm looking forward to seeing how that continues. All right. Well, let's wrap this one up. I think well, that I, I, I have a question surpassed. for David first. I have a question for David. Sure. So, so David, behind you, on, on your bookshelf, it, I, I, I forget how far down. Is that a copy of Data Driven Security that I see there? It is indeed. Look at that. I, I, I can recognize. I, no, I, it's right there. It's like on that this, the shelf. That's really good resolution. There. That's impressive. Yeah, it's right, it's right there, and it's like it's right, right at head level. I'm, I'm only bringing that up because right now on Amazon, for everyone listening, thirty percent off holiday thirty. I, nice. I, I have to say the book at least once a show, guys. Sorry. Capitalist show. And it, it looks like David, you have risk analysis by David Vos next to a Bruce Schneier book. Yes, a little bit of everything. Okay. <laughs> But they're right next to each other. Uh, just you might want to put some space. <laughs> just, just saying, like they're slightly different. I, I think we have to do a whole show on David's bookshelf. What is in your data science bookshelf, right? We, there, there could be an interesting book. conversation about things that I've taken off the shelf recently. Oh. <laughs> yeah, actually, we we are going to be having um, a blog post on. Uh, basically, what to buy your data scientist for friend for the holidays, um, and you know, while of course we're gonna probably put our book at the top because it is our blog, um, we are looking for submissions from everybody. Else. So I think we've actually already asked you guys to give us your your thoughts. But anyone that's listening, if you have some some things that you think would be good to add to that list, we'll be glad to to review them and put them up on on the. And list. that that's assuming Bob that people are still listening after an hour. <laughs> well, well, so, I, I, so, so there are chapter markers, so people can take this in small doses. It's okay. Okay.
good. Um, and and with, so, so with that, we actually were going to go through a giant list of links um, for, for this particular episode, like, like, like what you do in the second half. There, there really isn't a second half of this show because that would mean it would be a two-hour show. Uh, but I, I will just briefly mention, um, since I did actually say Seaborn at the beginning of this, uh, so for folks that aren't doing stuff in Python, uh, and I think there are probably more people who listen to this doing stuff in Python than in R, if you're not familiar with Seaborn, uh, there'll be a link in here, and we'll throw something up on, maybe some examples up on a blog post soon. And it is, I would, even though there is a ggplot for Python, I would actually really call Seaborn the ggplot of Python. It produces stunningly beautiful visualizations. It has all of the features that, that are available in ggplot, and it integrates with things like Boca. I can't pronounce that either, but um, so that, that Boca is a Python library that lets you do web, webby things with Python as well, too. Or, and there's a D3 library in PLD3, I think. Um, that also interfaces with, but you can basically do the faceted plots that I, I personally love so much. Does linear regression models? Um, it does time series stuff. It does major. It basically does everything, and it does it, I think, a little prettier um, than the ggplot graphics. So if you're not playing with that, um, definitely take a look at it. And if you are an R person and you want to play with it, you can always use the R Python integration to kind of call some of that and do some of that within your R code too. I, but I just wanted to get a shout out to that. Nice. I think it's probably safe for you to make some comments about the Easter egg because no one's going to listen this far. Uh, we're, we're not giving. So as, as, I, as I did on an alternate podcast, there is an Easter egg in the book that of the 2,700 people that have purchased the book, because we, we actually do know that statistic, um, of, of that number, no one has found the Easter egg. And, and, it, and it was an Easter egg actually aimed at security data, so security domain experts, not necessarily data people. So for anybody that brought the book and claims to be one of those Jason Bourne security people and you have not found the Easter egg, um, there's an Easter egg in there that you completely missed. And we'll know that you found it because, well, you will. Like, well, we, we just will. So. Uh, well, thank you, everybody, for joining us. I think we'll wrap this one up. So, uh, Alex, David, Michael, the three of you, thank you so much for joining us. I'm sure that we're going to have you on, you know, again real soon. Maybe when we talk about books or something. But, um, but I know that all of you are are doing your own work uh, during the day. You got like real day things going on, and and we didn't talk about any of that really uh, at any great length. So uh, definitely want to get you guys back on at some point and talk about your day jobs too, because uh, terribly interesting people we have here, Bob. Yeah, I mean, there's, they're, they're doing lots and lots of cool real work that really needs more exposure, and folks really do need to follow more. And yeah. that also means that David needs to blog more, and, and actually Reitman needs to blog more, and, and actually Alex needs to blog more. You all need to blog more. Yeah, that's true. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for being on, and uh, thank you for joining us for Episode 12 of the Data Driven Security Podcast. Thanks for having us. Cheers, guys. Thanks. Bye-bye.